Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about vertigo. I had to quit. Why? It's because of this fear of heights I have, this acrophobia. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it and it's just... It wasn't your fault. I know, that's what everybody tells me. Johnny, the doctors explained to you. I know. I know. I have acrophobia, which gives me vertigo, and I get dizzy. This is an American suspenseful psychological mystery romance. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Our first Hitchcock movie on the podcast. The cast includes George Bailey, Madge Owens, Miss Ellie Ewing, and Anthony Bridewell. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched it on YouTube, the only streaming service that's not falling to pieces. Did you see that HBO Max is turning into Max? Oh, brother. That'll <laughs> fix it. it. Really? Yeah, really, that'll fix Good it. luck riffing really off of this emphasizing the thing that's definitely not true about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, YouTube, you know, continues to be the best place to lock your eyes onto, uh, whether that's productive or not. And we'll have to decide if it was productive this time. But first, we are going to recap the events in the movie Vertigo by going over the synopsis that was written by Joey. Joey, take it away. Detective John Scotty Ferguson is chasing a criminal across the rooftops of San Francisco when he misses a jump and is forced to hang on to a gutter high above the city streets. A fellow police officer tries to save Scotty, but the officer instead falls to his death. This traumatic event leads to Scotty developing an acute fear of heights accompanied by the dizzying sensation of vertigo. He tells his old friend and ex-fiance, Marjorie Midge Wood, that because of his condition, his policing days are over. But that changes when he gets a call from an old friend, Gavin Elster. Elster is afraid his wife is being possessed by an evil spirit and calls old John up to follow her. Scotty reveals himself to be one of the worst sleuths of all time, following Madeline everywhere, barely hiding behind walls and sticking his head out of windows. Luckily, Madeline is rolling ones on all her perception checks and never notices her stalker. Madeline goes to the flower store, a gravesite, the art museum, and an old house. Each of these holds significance to a woman named Carlotta Valdez. Carlotta is Madeline's great-grandmother and committed suicide tragically young at only 26, which happens to be Madeline's current age. Elster believes that insane women syndrome is hereditary and that Madeline will also attempt suicide. Scotty isn't so sure. He thinks there must be a logical reason for all of this. On one of her trips around town, Madeline jumps into San Francisco Bay and Scotty saves her. He takes off all her clothes, dries her off, and places her in his bed. After she wakes up, he insists she drink something and tell him about herself. She reluctantly agrees, but when the opportunity arises, she escapes back home. Madeline returns to Sky's apartment to deliver a thank you note for saving her life, and the two start to hang out together instead of Madeline wandering and Scotty following her. After visiting the Redwood Forest, they admit their love for each other and start kissing. Madeline is having a vivid, reoccurring dream about a place that Scotty recognizes. It is San Juan Bautista, an old, preserved Spanish mission site. 
Scotty takes Madeline there, convinced this will cure her womanly hysteria. But Madeline is even more distraught. She kisses Scotty, but tells him it's too late. She uses the facts that Scotty is terrible at following her and is afraid of heights to scale the bell tower and, with a scream, throw herself from the top to her death. There is a trial where neither Scotty nor Madeline's husband, Gavin, are found at fault. But Scotty can't cope with the loss of another man's wife. He goes catatonic. Not even Midge, his old friend, can pull him out of it. A year later, Scotty is functional again, but he spends his time wandering to Madeline's favorite places and thinks he sees her around every corner. While slack jolidly staring at one woman's profile, he decides to follow her home to her small room in the Empire Hotel. After she answers the door and asks what he wants, he tells her she reminds him of someone he once loved and lost, and asks if they can go on a date together. This woman is called Judy Barton, and she's from Kansas, except she's actually Madeline, living under a new identity. That's right, boys. The rails are gone. We are flying now. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! You see, the person Scotty was stalking was not Madeline, Elster's wife. She was an actress, pretending to be Elster's wife. She was also pretending to be possessed by Carlotta, and she pretended to drown. The only thing she didn't pretend was her love for Scotty. Now that he had inadvertently found her again, she decides to risk it all, never tell him the truth, and start a new life with him, but this time as Judy Barton. But despite a note from his doctor, Scotty is a few cards short of a full deck. He becomes obsessed with transforming Judy into a copy of Madeline. Judy protests constantly, hoping against hope that this man will love her for who she really is. But Scotty persists. He buys her clothes that match Madeline's and forces Judy to change her hair and makeup. Finally, Judy is back in the disguise she wore for Scotty's benefit, but she goes too far. After she dons Carlotta's signature necklace, Scotty recognizes her for real. Under false pretenses, he drives her back to San Juan Bautista and forces her up the bell tower steps. As they ascend, more and more is revealed. Judy slash Madeline admit to the deception and, again, confess their love for Scotty. But Scotty says it's too late. A dark figure looms in the evening light and frightens Judy. She steps backwards off the ledge to her death. The dark figure is revealed to be a nun investigating the noise. As we fade to black, Scotty looks down at his twice-lost love. The end. There you have it. The events of Vertigo, as retold by Joey, will begin (laughs) our analysis with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about Vertigo? Um, Vertigo is an incredible feat of detail and craft. There's other otherworldly performances from James Stewart and Kim Novak, truly unparalleled. Uh, the use of repetition in scenes, setting and dialogue is spellbinding. The focus of color beyond even the visual is just mind-blowing. Um, this movie stretches what I thought was even possible in the medium of film. And honestly, I've never watched a movie that's made me feel this way before. Um, I feel my uh masculineness more than ever i want to punch walls i'm just i'm upset i'm 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 angry at everything after i watch this movie what about you what did you like about the movie um i think this movie has an incredible adherence to theme and motifs uh it's meticulously well planned out 
and executed. There's just so much to analyze. And, and once you kind of realize what this movie is doing, it just seems to have been able to do that so much to a degree that's just unbelievable. James Stewart and Kim Novak carry this entire film from an acting perspective. I mean, there's barely any, there's barely even a cast for this film. <laughs> it's and really, it's just them. <laughs> it's just them, and and they, I think they do a tremendous job in, in their roles. Uh, like you said, the the setting is absolutely beautiful. San Francisco is on full display in this film, which I think is fantastic. The score is really powerful, and I agree. There's some really interesting use of colors, and I'm I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that part of the film but it's not all good right we, we got to talk about what we didn't like so what are your cons for vertigo joey vertigo is long it's boring and it's a plot the plot ha- is bordering on just pure nonsense every moment is like perfectly directed like, like you can feel like the repetition that's happening behind the scenes behind it and it just feels <laughs> super fake honestly it feels like everything's a performance it feels like a stage play more than a movie um, I hate John Ferguson. I think he's <laughs> the worst. I hated him the moment I saw him. Um, I hate that this movie is important. I hate what it says about the meet this medium that I love, and I hate what it might say about me. Um, yes. <laughs> what about you? What do you, you? What do you not like about Vertigo? <laughs> Um, I do think it's interesting going into a movie that's this revered uh, because it almost feels like having any take the stakes are so much higher. Um, So I'm really excited to hear you expand on some of those cons. I think this movie was very difficult to watch on the first viewing. Uh, And even when some of the things that make it difficult to watch come back around and end up being very useful in service of uh, the themes of this film, I still feel like it doesn't make me want to go back and rewatch it. You know, I'm like, this was a slog and I just wasn't all that, thrilled with having to sit through it um even if i can appreciate why they would make us go through that slog um like it's, yeah it's, but you did watch it twice didn't you i well the second watch was a little bit faster than the first watch i'll say <laughs> um but yes essentially i did watch it twice so uh there's that i did but again <laughs> if i was just a viewer and not a podcaster I, i'm not sure if i would have even given it that chance and maybe just would have walked away scratching my head but but that's what I want to get into first. So let's get into our overall section because initially I really wasn't interested in this film. I felt like it dragged on and on and was just kind of boring, even in its most interesting parts. I felt like this movie was preoccupied with itself and I felt like I wasn't enough of a film nerd or a 1950s Andy to fully appreciate <laughs> the aspects of this film that made I others think call 1950s it. 1950s or 1950s Andrews. <laughs> Right. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I wasn't sure that I was enough of the right type of person to fully appreciate the aspects of this film that made others call it one of the greatest of all time. And after watching it, I went to bed feeling like this movie was too stuck in the past in an era of film that might as well be dead to someone like me. I couldn't understand how this movie could possess someone to put it in their top movies of all time. The conclusion that this could possibly be the greatest work of a legendary director seemed false to me. But before writing my review, I decided to sleep on it. 
That night, I was tormented by vivid and intense dreams. Colors washed over me in pulsating waves as I stared into the bottomless abyss, while visions of themes and motifs from Vertigo swirled around me. I awoke with a sweat, my mind spinning. What did it all mean? I rushed to my computer and commenced my rewatch. My interest grew into a whirlwind of engrossment as I pieced together the mystery of the film I thought I had understood the first time. As I revisited the same scenes, they were somehow new. To me, the film was no longer preoccupied with itself. Instead, I was growing preoccupied with the film. Spirals, <laughs> death, repetition obsession it was all so clear to me now the real world melted away from me as i fell into a full-blown mania my descent into appreciation for this film reaching terminal velocity as the bell tolled to close out the film it finally hit me this is a true work of genius and uh and I and, I, and i and i hope that i got across what part what aspects of the film i'm really appreciating here and i do think it's the structure um i i i feel like this movie really starts with spirals literally and also like from a a structure standpoint and builds from there and um I think they're called fractals, these kind of infinite recursive shapes that you can see themselves in themselves, and no matter how far you zoom in, it continues to exist. I feel like this movie is structured in that way, and I, mm. I think it's it's really beautiful the way that that is executed. Um, you see those spirals in the opening credits, and it's you know they're screaming at you. They're like, "Hey, pay attention to spirals. There are spirals in this movie." And even with that, I didn't catch it on the first watch. I, I, I like I said at the beginning of this, I got done in the movie. I was like, "What the heck was that? Why does anybody care about this movie?" Uh, but after doing a little bit of supplemental reading and um, looking back at scenes the second time, I think it became really clear that this movie um, really focuses on. these things uh, a few of these things spirals death repetition and obsession and i kind of want to get into those specifically but i want to give you a chance to uh to say something (laughs) i think that um uh, almost every review i've read of this movie or listened to from this movie uh follows the same pattern that you just described which is the first time they watched it and i I found this camp too first time i watched it i had no idea what it was i i was confused i was annoyed frustrated right What's interesting, I think, is that some of the emotions that I feel now, having a better appreciation for the movie, were present the first time I watched it. It was just subtly imp- like incepted into me. Martin Scorsese said that that's what happened to him when he saw the movie with his friends when he was 15 in theaters. He said that they were enraptured by it, but they didn't understand it. And he felt that that feeling that he got from watching Vertigo was uh, something that he sort of chased uh, and became... Why, one of the reasons why he became a director. Um, but almost every uh, thing I've read, there was one from, uh, I think, the Sight and Sound people, the people that have rated this movie as best of all time. Uh, There's an article that I really enjoyed. The guy said he watched it and then he, he dismissed it. He didn't understand it, didn't like it at all. 20 years later, he was teaching it for a film class and it suddenly like, clicked for him. So I, like I, when I read that, I'm like, I don't have 20 years. I got four days. <laughs> like, how am I going to get to there? But um <laughs> But yeah, that's I think that's a pretty normal feeling. You know, if you watch this yeah. movie once, I think that's like the palate you have to have a palate cleanser or something and then the second time or third or fourth time you watch it, it suddenly more pops out to you. Um and yeah, I think once you 
I, honestly, I feel this way about this movie more than any other one. Watching it the second time, it shrinks. It feels like everything is more condensed. It feels like everything, like the, I can see the whole thing at once instead of having these tiny pieces at one time. And knowing how it ends and being familiar with every scene, suddenly a lot of things kind of connect where they weren't before. Um, so, yeah. I agree with that as well. Um, the the second time watching through, again, I I also feel like time moves faster when you're having fun and when i was able to be like oh that thing is this and and like uh, there's another example of this repeating makes it a lot better on that second watch too but oh, man that first watch through was a slog I, I while we're talking about other directors reactions to this movie i read that orson wells disliked this movie which was one of the first <laughs> things i read about after my first viewing and i was like based orson wells like agreeing with again. me again like not like yeah <laughs> who knew yeah, he didn't even know that he was going to be pitted against it infinitely um, throughout all time. But that's so funny. Uh, yeah. And um, so anyways, I do think we should cover some of those things that make it so good. And then we'll continue to, to express how we feel. So talking about spirals, they appear everywhere in this film. First of all, the sensation of vertigo. It you makes you dizzy. You know, you're at a high. You, you feel like you're uh, going to fall down and you've got this kind of uh spinning kind of feeling in your head madeline's hairstyle that is meant to match carlotta's hairstyle it's a like i i, I forgot the actual name of it but it literally is a spiral in her hair the stump at muir woods where they point out where carlotta's life would have begun and would have ended it's a giant spiral of like rings from this uh tree and and i don't know if uh you know, trees are not perfectly circular, but this particular one was shaped in a way that almost gave that spiral hurricane almost shape to it. Um, then we've got the stairs of the bell tower, another place where we uh, you experience that vertigo uh, camera effect. It's a spiral, literally a spiral staircase. Uh, the story structure itself after Johnny's mental break, we basically see all of the same things that we saw in the first half of the movie happen again, but now faster and with a slightly new circumstance. Uh, but it's, you know, returning to the same settings. Uh, we have the same kind of um, things happening within them within those scenes uh but now there's like a slightly shifted uh aspect to them um and we can kind of get into that in a second um and then I'll, like another one which is apparently a really iconic scene is the spiral camera movement when judy slash madeline and scotty uh, embrace right. and kiss you literally have it, it starts off as like a close-up and then it spins out and then back in this the camera is literally in a spiral around our actors as so. like they're transported or i guess scotty really is transported back to the last time they kissed yes. um, which was um at in the stables at um uh, what's it san juan, san juan bautista. bautista yeah so so, so um stuff yeah. like that it's like yeah, you found point. so many ways to incorporate the idea of spirals into this movie without making it <laughs> overt which I, yeah. I say hesitantly because obvious it's so obvious once you pick up on it but i didn't catch it the first time and uh it sounds like a lot of people miss it as well um but but there's uh i guess do you want to chime in on spirals or you want me to keep going well it's just like um <laughs> it's funny that there are all of these like subtle there's so much subtle to, to this movie because um when you see madeline sitting down in front of Corlotta's like picture and you see Scotty watching her and noticing the spiral connection between her 
bun and the Carlotta's bun and um, the flowers and the necklace, right? It's like this really obvious zoom in, like, this is what we're talking about. Look, they're the same. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I'm like, I'm like hitting myself in the head. Like, why? Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> are we really that dumb? But like, <laughs> like it's so that is in the movie. And then there's all this like really subtle stuff where if, if you're like tracing uh, where the camera is or where, <laughs> where um, Scotty is driving his car, suddenly you're making spirals, but you <laughs> yep. didn't really see it before. Um, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a weird juxtaposition for me. And, um, uh, I, I, this feeling of kind of being off center or uh, off balance, I think, is uh, largely on purpose. Um, but it can easily fall into incompetence, right? It, it can easily look exactly like you don't know what you're doing. Um, and it's only if you believe and trust Hitchcock, uh, it does this become like something that's important. Right. I, I think especially with how ludicrous the story is you have to ask yourself if that if if it's worth it if the right. magic of the spirals justifies just how ridiculous the actual story itself is but there again through the story we're able to experience more of this kind of spiral like a uh, theme we've got yeah. the echoes of the impact of the dead right because uh Carlotta ends up killing herself, right? So she dies. Then her death impacts her mother, who ends up dying. And then through like a fake story, whether that's real or not, um, Carlotta's death is impacting Madeline, the character of Madeline, who has this obsession with Carlotta. And then after Madeline is dead, the character of Madeline dies. Now her death uh, is is impacting John, and that is echo, and that basically parallels the uh, like obsession uh, theme in this film because there's always somebody who's obsessed with something else. Uh, again, <laughs> Carlotta was obsessed with her child, right? That was the thing that brought her to uh, you know killing herself was because she couldn't handle the loss of her child. She became fixated on it. Then Madeline was supposedly so obsessed with Carlotta that that was going to be the, the cause of her own death, right? And then finally, after Carlo after Madeline's death, John is so obsessed with Madeline that, you know, that's what drives the, the events up until the end of the movie, right? Um, so... That leads us into repetition, which is what we just witnessed through all of those events that I just recapped, but also in so many other aspects. Returning to the same scenes, we return to Ernie's multiple times, which I love Ernie's. I would love to eat at an Ernie's. Uh, I love red wall when so Gavin's cool. like, come to dinner. You'll see, you know, come to Ernie's and see it. And like, John's not invited to dinner. He's just invited <laughs> to watch them eat dinner. Hilarious. <laughs> he has the, the dinner date cuck uh john just watching from the bar uh then we have the museum that we return to many times the hotel or hotels uh like the the hotel is either the one that um judy is staying in or the one that madeline slash carlotta is staying in um and then also the the, the old town of san juan bautista uh we these places keep recurring right in the same order uh as we you know continue the spiral as we continue the fractal there we also have echoes of the same deception early in the film when elster is trying to get john to be his investigator he lies to him obviously it's a scheme the whole way but he's like it's a very convincing lie because as soon as john doubts it elster says okay fine i don't want you 
I, I need someone who's going to believe me. I'm not going to waste my time with you. Even though the scheme was specific, it would not have worked on anyone else. They needed him, right? So it's this it really is. good sell of Duh. the lie. And, Gosh, the uh, plot is so yeah. stupid. Uh, I I can't get over it. You know, it's the stupidest thing I've ever I've ever heard. And like all of it, so like uh, all of it, like resides on this idea that John can't climb stairs. And like. <laughs> And like that he will run away after the thing's over and won't go over there and be like, hey, that's not the woman. He won't go over to the body and be like, hey, wait a second. That's not the woman I thought it was, you know, or like, how does Gavin get off the bell tower? Right. He's up there with with another woman who's dressed the same as his wife. And somehow both of them disappear without getting caught. (laughs) <laughs> ridiculous uh, the whole thing is so silly and then um yeah he's just like oh i'm being and then the whole thing is like uh, uh all resides on madeline's ability to sell specifically john this lie right that this is like some sort of possession that she's crazy and she, he's like did you, did you ever go to the museum and she's like no and he's like hmm <laughs> Uh, I can't I don't know what it is you know like, like it's just so like everything is so uh tenuous everything is is built on this idea of like suspension of disbelief which I think is on purpose I think it's supposed to be this idea that um that this that movies can be so far-fetched and yet audiences will still believe them um and that's what's going on here they they really give you one of the most insane stupid um like ideas of how to kill your wife and um and and try to say yeah this is what happened you know when um when it's revealed uh, that Judy is Madeline right that that she's the one there and they show you like how uh, Gavin did it I was like I was first I was like uh what and then she starts writing the note and I had to pause the movie and just step away and be like what I wrote in my notes <laughs> like oh, are you serious are we really doing this like <laughs> I could not I, I I couldn't stomach it and um it just becomes even more ridiculous the more it goes on and the idea that this is on purpose makes me feel like the movie's making fun of me and um <laughs> I don't really appreciate it um yeah I I generally thought of John slash Scotty as just kind of a insane fool like the fact that he was able to be pulled along by this caper and that he thought that it would make sense for this to be the answer to his lonely days uh just it, it did not come across in a way that made me it was not endearing to me. Absolutely I didn't not. come away liking John Moore. I, I liked him less and less as the movie continued. And I at least felt like that was the intention of the film to, to point out that these men yes. are kind of ridiculous, which is, which is why I think James Stewart was cast. This was against type in every other movie that, um, Jimmy Stewart's in. He is some sort of a uh, hero. He's like a, a noble guy. It's a wonderful life. It's a perfect example. Even rear window previous, uh, Hitchcock film he's like very um noble and uh, you know charismatic and friendly and uh you know he's he's doing the right thing and he's easier to to root for you go into this movie expecting the same thing and when it turns out when he turns out to be this obsessive horny weirdo it becomes it's so <laughs> off-putting and strange and and plays with your expectations in a in a real way um and i think that's that's one of the like it just goes along it feels like another brilliant move by hitchcock and by the people who made this movie to cast him in this role on purpose uh to do it i mean this movie is extremely meta cinematic and that is 
uh, another aspect of it. Well, I do want to get into that, but let me let me wrap up on repetition here because we we talked about the hard lie of uh, like not thinking that John, even though he's critical for this scheme to work, being like, oh, well, then we don't want you unless, you know, and then when Judy <laughs> opens the door for John, she is hard selling this idea that she doesn't know him. Right. And she's treating him like some stranger as opposed to just letting him in, which totally he would have come in. Right. Um, so. I like that that kind of deception yeah. echoes through it. You know, you've got the classic looking over the the ledge from a high place <laughs> happens a bunch in this movie as well as well as people falling off of like high ledges. Three different people die from <laughs> by falling near John Ferguson. Oh, yeah, it's definitely uh fall damage is turned on in uh, the world of Vertigo. Um <laughs> But also, like, speaking about the way that, that, that men exist, I, I feel like this movie has commentary on kind of the power fantasy for men. Um, they, they talked about, again, something that echoes throughout this movie. Early in the film, Elster's looking at that picture of old San Francisco, and he's like, man, I, I miss the old days uh, where, you know, we had that power and freedom. And then there's Yeah, this, I know. Back when this, men were men. Yeah, exactly. Not not the soy boys of the 1950s. You know, that's uh, they're also uh, you know beta now in the 50s. <laughs> but um, the, you know they 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 talked about um, that back in the day, Carlotta's fate was being discarded by her yes, husband. Yes, I, who no I actually have that quote her. right here. So he kept the child and threw her away. You know, men could do that in those days. They had the power and the freedom. That's a uh, pop lepel. Um, yes, at the bookstore. Pop uh, lepel, professional tea rememberer. Like they didn't <laughs> want, they didn't want a historian who would tell them like the, the the important events that happened. They needed someone who would be willing to spill the tea on the gossip <laughs> of the town back in that era. Um, that's hilarious. Which, which is, um, like, but 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 yeah. that's what what. Elster is like yearning for and what he's also perpetuating right the, the Carlotta was discarded by her husband and now Elster is prepared to discard his wife by killing her well Not discard like, her and and uh Madeline as well because uh, Madeline and Gavin is hinted at that they had some sort of relationship right, um, right. And that he discarded her uh you know in order to uh clean up the loose ends of this movie yep so Again, this and then it continues too because um, I feel like the portrayal of uh, Scotty is supposed to show something that I honestly think is like very true about men is that men prefer the fantasy woman over a real woman. Like Madge clearly has feelings for Scotty. Midge, whatever her name is. I don't care about her either. I'm more interested in the fantasy woman. No, no. Um, Midge clearly loves Scotty. But he doesn't pay her any attention, right? His her advances are are completely fall flat. And he prefers to yearn for the insane slash dead mystery woman that he's been chasing around town, who's presumably married or insane or both, right? So, yes. um, like it, I I feel like that really uh paints yeah. men in this bad light where it's like men are idiots with the way that they think uh, about relationships, like. Uh, and uh, honestly, I thought it was a really great portrayal of like Scotty being an absolute dumbass. I com- I cannot agree more with that. And um, I mean, we gotta we gotta say it. Hashtag justice for Midge. You know, yes, uh, uh, she is the the uh, motorcycle boyfriend of Vertigo. Um, you know, thrown yes. to the side. 
Yes, um, much more talented even than the motorcycle boyfriend in Small Soldiers because she paints this amazing portrait. That was honestly, of all the unrealistic things that happened in this movie, which there are a lot, the least realistic was Scotty's reaction to Midge's painting because it was masterclass I I painting. Was, I was laughing so hard. I was like, dang, Midge, totally roasted him. Really yes. got him. Top me, Midge. And instead, he can't, like, honestly, if you're a well-adjusted individual, even if this, this does hurt your feelings, you have to be like, okay, that is pretty well executed. Like, this <laughs> yeah, hurts exactly. my feelings. Terrible idea. Uh, like, great execution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like that picture. And I like Midge a lot. And it's really interesting seeing her there. I, I'm one of the, I listened to two different podcasts about this movie. And one of them mentioned um, how uh, Midge sort of fits a more traditional Hitchcock blonde. Um, because she's a natural blonde, whereas Judy slash um, uh, Madeline is like that white-haired platinum, you know, blonde. Uh, so it's like this uh, sort of subversion almost of the Hitchcock trope. But Midge is clearly coded as you know not being as beautiful as Kim Novak, right? She's clearly meant to be tossed to the side, and it sucks that she cares at all what Scotty thinks because he's such an asshole. I wish that um you know she would move on to someone else, but clearly he's like she thinks of them as being in a relationship, even if they aren't. Or Scotty doesn't, which is just tragic. So yeah, I, um, I didn't. I thought it was weird. I wasn't sure if this was a 1950s thing where it's like if you're a woman and you get engaged and you break it off, like that's your one go at it, and then you're just right, permanently you to, sidelined you keep, like, in the shadow of your ex fiance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stupid. Yeah, so I um I really feel for Midge, and um it doesn't like even though Scotty is portrayed as so poorly in this movie, and he like loses at every every change and every every part, and when they he goes on. Trial, they totally roast him and call him a coward, which I thought was hilarious. I never felt like it, it justified anything. You know, I always, I still felt bad for Midge, and I wish you know, there was no justice more. in that trial. I loved it. They were like, okay, well, these two guys were involved in this woman's death. No one is guilty. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like, well, we, a we bunch of agree. white men, all agree this was the yeah. right. This is the right call. It was like, all right, jury, you can now deliberate. And they like <laughs> turn to each other for five fucking seconds, and they're like, <laughs> not guilty. <laughs> Hilarious, amazing. They even bother going to a real courtroom. They were like in this in the same like place. <laughs> No, Gosh. no sense like going, getting a new yeah, set. No sense wasting the government's time with this petty woman's death. <laughs> uh, uh, did you want to mention anything about color specifically? So one of, yeah, to... one of my favorite aspects, motifs, and conceits in this movie is the use of color. It's something that I didn't really appreciate until I uh, listened to all these podcasts and read a bunch about it. But um, one of the things that Hitchcock does is he codes Madeline as green and she is uh she is green throughout the whole movie right um there's tons and tons of like uh different scenes where somebody's wearing green Scotty's wearing green or um Madeline's wearing green she drives a green car she says the word green over and over again when they go see the redwood forest um i think Scotty says something like always green always living type thing um which uh, all hints toward that and then uh the most powerful use of green in the movie is when madeline is 
or Judy transforms totally into Madeline. She, she puts her hair back, she steps from the doorway, and a door is, is lit by a green light from the Empire Hotel sign, and then she opens the door, and she's like, there's a fog filter. She's like, comes through as if she was a ghost coming from the past. Amazing. Um, really, really interesting. And then red is also emphasized um, when Madeline jumps into the river. Uh, she's when she comes back to Scotty's apartment, she's wearing a red a robe. But the first time you see her, she's in Ernie's and you see her from her profile and the red like gets boosted from the back as if uh, Scotty is a uh, blood is rushing to a certain part of Scotty's body. Um, and his heart. <laughs> yes, his heart. <laughs> He's he loves love. her so much. Um, <laughs> And uh, this is like the, the, the red as passion um, it falls into this contrast as green from as uh, otherworldly or, or possessed, uh, which is just fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, it's really powerful stuff, really interesting, inte- intelligent and intentional stuff. I was uh, I was really impressed with that and uh, something that uh, only someone who uh, I, I think once worked in black and white or was forced to work in black and white would truly uh, emphasize how powerful color can be um, in the, in their movies. That's a really good point. That is because uh, I do think that color can easily be lost on uh, you know people like us who started watching movies right before who, the turn of the century, color, right? Who, yeah. who have been who's seeing color? <laughs> that's right. The color vision wasn't invented until the nineteen thirties. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I think that's a really good point, though, for real. So. Um, as I was watching Vertigo for the first time for this podcast, uh, a mystery began to unfold inside my mind. Why <laughs> the fuck do people like this movie? I couldn't understand it. I found it grating, boring, unsettling, nonsensical. The more I read about the film, the more convinced I became that I was right. I kept thinking, does the master of suspense have no clothes? And yet, for the last 65 years, the discourse seems to be an argument about whether Vertigo is the greatest Hitchcock movie or the greatest movie of all time. Like Scotty Ferguson, my obsession grew. I tried desperately to fit Vertigo into a box. I squeezed it and shaped it, trying to find out what it was, why it mattered. I was convinced I was crazy for even giving this movie a chance. This is just misogynistic shit. This is just about a guy, a bad guy in a worse situation. Why should I care? The temptation to throw this movie from the rooftop and watch it shatter to death still resides within me. But its stated allure by so many is what kept me in the game until suddenly I felt the cold water of revelation rush over me. I confess, I didn't get it. And many, many reviews insist that they do get it, but don't articulate why they get it. I see great love story, great tragedy, great suspense, and great mystery all thrown around. These people are wrong. These people miss the forest for the giant redwood trees. Vertigo deserves its place in film history. It was here long before me and will long outlast me. And like American slavery or the Holocaust, uh, it should never be forgotten. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Vertigo is not a mystery. It acts like a mystery and it leads you on as if it is a mystery. But that is a facade, one that fades away almost as soon as we meet Judy in her apartment. The movie hints at this unbalance by introducing threads and compelling histories into the story while insisting that possession is a real possibility. The beauty of cinema is that God is real, but that God is also insane. Ghosts and evil possessions from across the grave are real to characters in a movie, even if those things are only imaginary to us. So what should we believe? Is Madeline actually possessed? Is this is something else going on? Uh, what's interesting is that the literal possession isn't necessarily true, but the possession of of madeline 
uh, or Judy becoming Madeline is true. And this chain of obsession that you dictated earlier, it follows the same chain that a real possession would, right? It's possession made real. Um, and I still don't know if possession is real. In this movie, it is, <laughs> but I can't tell. And you have nothing to stand on about whether or not you believe this is a ghost story or not, because uh, Hitchcock is playing with your expectations so much. As the mystery unfolds, it also dissolves. Scotty becomes directly involved in the story, saving Madeline's life and then becoming her friend and then her potential lover. The methodical pacing from one facet of the mystery to another transforms into long, repetitive shots of Scotty driving down a Penrose staircase of San Francisco streets, always <laughs> downhill, turning left, then right, then left, then right, eventually zigzagging his way back to his own damn house. He is traveling <laughs> in circles. At this point, I'm desperately clinging to the mystery that was promised to me, but this movie is now something else it's a story of forbidden love but vertigo is not a love story at least i refuse to give it what i give what i saw on screen the title of love i hated scotty from the moment i saw him he is pompous cowardly and horny after he saves madeline from drowning he undresses her while she's still semi-conscious uh, he is insistent that she wear his robe and that she please drink something when uh, she leaves abruptly he's offended I hear that Kim Novak was cast partly because she had this docile look about her. Madeline is easily placated and convinced. She falls for Scotty, despite him putting her in an extremely vulnerable position. Why didn't he take her home? Why didn't he call Gavin to have her pick her up? Instead of insisting she not travel alone or be under some sort of suicide watch, he just continues to follow her until he invites himself to wander with her. It is clear he's become infatuated with a woman he's barely spoken to. She is some clearly sick in some strange way, and he finds that attractive. The male fantasy of saving a troubled woman is disgusting to me. I find it fucking repulsive. I'm practically spitting mad right now. I am so mad in the internet right now. I could not <laughs> believe that this was at the heart of such a beloved movie. Is the entire movie industry just misogynistic? Spoiler alert, yes. But let's erect the other side of the church tower so we have a comfortable place to leap from. On the other side, Madeline is acting. She needs to keep Scotty close, but she also finds his obsession desirable, and this allows the movie to transition again to another genre. The movie then turns into a story of obsession. After Madeline dies and is reborn as Judy, Scotty finds her and transfers his infatuation with Madeline into attention for Judy. Judy, despite Judy, desperate for someone to love her, accepts this infatuation and tells herself that she just, if she just lets him get his way, he will eventually love her for her. It's a tale as old as time. People conform to what they think people expect of them. People become what those who claim to love them tell them they should be. The power of a lover to transform their love is palpable, corrosive, and unstoppable. We all want to be loved. We all want to be desired. Despite all the messaging of believe in yourself and love yourself, we are helpless against encouragement from those we admire. Vertigo shows us the destructive and inane lengths people will go for that love, and it is meant to be very, very literal. You see, the desire to look a certain way is certainly present for both genders, but it is far more pervasive and unignorable for women. The look, the figure, the impossible body images floated from the past that force young women to buy expensive makeup, buy push-up bras, and starve themselves. They have transformed our entire society in so many ways. From the subtle to the obvious, our friends, girlfriends, wives, and daughters have all felt the same pressure Judy does to transform themselves into something other than themselves. 
And nowhere is this phenomenon more predatory or ubiquitous than Hollywood. If you want to get ahead, you have to look a certain way. If you want to stand out, you have to look like everyone else. Hitchcock's contributions to cinema are staggering. He was born at the right place at the right time to transform film in his image. He bridged the gap between black and white and color and between silent films and the talkies. His philosophy of pure cinema still holds sway over the industry today. Here is director William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist and The French Connection, in an interview about Vertigo. To those of you out there who may want to go to film school or have a child that would like to go to film school, just watch the films of Alfred Hitchcock. That's all you need to know about how to make films. It's what I did. Uh, I think this is a common feeling among Hollywood directors, even today. But by emulating Hitchcock, Hollywood has embraced his unsavory qualities as well. The adherence to a male gaze, I think, is why the film industry is dominated by white men and why directors are rarely female and film lovers are usually men too. These movies are made for people in my demographic and are meant to speak to me specifically. The elevation of the young skinny blonde is also a Hitchcock staple, one that still persists to today. The poor treatment of women on Hitchcock's sets is the great-grandfather of the class of rapists like Harvey Weinstein that still run Hollywood. But Vertigo puts this all on display. And there's a quote from David Fincher, uh, which I couldn't find the actual quote from, but I'll read it for you now. He said, if you think you can hide what your interests are, what your prurient interests are, what your noble interests are, what your fascinations are, if you think you can hide that in your work as a film director, you're nuts. Looking at the, you, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Quentin Fittentino. <laughs> exactly. You, you've <laughs> nailed it. The main conceits and most powerful parts of Vertigo are dark, accurate reflections of Hitchcock himself. He was obsessive and controlling. While directing, he fully embodied his role as God. He literally transformed Kim Novak into the girl in his imagination, constantly prodding and adjusting her until she was exactly the way he wanted her to be. And many years later, I think this is actually 2012-ish, Kim Novak uh, did an interview with BFI where she said this. I think the role appealed to me because it was the resistance of Judy, who was, in a sense, me, trying to become the Hollywood person trying to be Madeline, needing to be loved, and willing to be made over. She becomes blonde, and then she wears it down, and she says, no, it's not quite right, and then she puts it up. Finally, at the end, is, is this it? Is it, you know, will you, if, if I become her, will you love me? Do you know? You know? And I, I remember when I played it, it, it was, I mean, I felt absolutely stripped naked, do you know? I felt so vulnerable. He knew exactly what he wanted. She's talking about Hitchcock here. The facade was everything to him. If, if the hair was off in any way, he was calling the hairdress over constantly. Fix that. In the back, the bun is twisted wrong. And he would notice that. He was uh, obsessed with it, I would say. Obsessed with the look. It was as if he was Jimmy Stewart being, making sure that she was dressed exactly the way Madeline was. He was playing the part of Jimmy Stewart. If I let you change me, will that do it? Will you love me? Crazy, right? This is what I mean by metacinematic. It's, it, 
Vertigo, much like Citizen Kane, is unintentionally about the man who made it. Hitchcock is embodied by John Ferguson and despite himself, puts himself on display, bearing his soul nakedly. At first, it appears to be a sophisticated mystery, but the story transforms into something dark and twisted. Almost like Hitchcock gets tired of the facade of being the world's greatest director, and instead it reduces himself to the obsessive, controlling, horny old man he truly was all along. Um, the movie falls into this strange intersection of self-fulfilling prophecy. Hitchcock displays the side of his art on screen for all to see, showing it as a destructive, terrifying force. And yet, neither he nor any of his disciples rail against it. They accept it and use it as fertilizer for their own projects. It's like a desperate cry for help that is interpreted as beautiful music. The movie makes me feel deeply uncomfortable and even ashamed. I can admit it now that after obsessing over it for five days straight, it's something truly powerful. It has stretched my imagination by the limits of film as a medium. It has pulled back the curtain and showed me the guts I was afraid to admit were there. Vertigo is why we can't have nice things. It is both a reflection of its author's shortcomings and a promise of what's to come. It makes me feel like movies are a flawed medium. One, like our own society, that is built on the insecurities of the powerful and the exploitation of the oppressed. And yet, within it, it contains the very tools necessary for reconciliation. More than six decades later, we are still grappling with Vertigo and its influence. But to forget it is to forget a vital lesson. We were born in sludge, but we may still achieve divinity. Wow, that's really compelling stuff. Um, I, I, I have a couple uh, kind of reactions to it. So am I getting this straight? Is the in, um, kind of interpretation that Hitchcock w- was putting uh, Jimmy or uh, John on display here as an endorsement of his actions? Um, was this like something that was perceived differently at the time where it's like, look at this good guy, uh, this hero cop who finally got his lucky break and falling in love with this woman? I don't think so. And that's what I think is really hard for me to reconcile. When I was watching it the first time, I couldn't decide whether Jimmy Stewart was a hero or not. And part of the reason was because he was Jimmy Stewart, right? I thought for sure that this was going to be a traditional mystery with a hero detective. But it wasn't that. And it became something so much worse. And I, um, and I didn't know that Hitchcock, like what Hitchcock really thought, right? I, didn't, I couldn't tell if this was something that he thought was good behavior or not. But I think that the end of the movie where he turns, he's trying to turn Judy into Madeline is a retroactive denouncement of his actions previously, where as before, I think we're supposed to interpret them as possibly um, morally gray, right? Like maybe he's uh, acting out in some desperate way, but on the right side. Um, the fact that he goes to this length because of his obsession uh, proves that he, it was within him all along, right? I do think this is actually supposed to be something personal about Hitchcock. Rear Window, for example, is also metacinematic. The movie is about Jimmy Stewart, actually. <laughs> sitting, he's got a broken leg, and he's sitting in his apartment. He has nothing to do. Um, so he's a, he's a photographer. So he sits in his um, room, and he watches his neighbors through his rear window. And what, a, a series of plots unfold, including a murder, which he eventually gets wound up in. But... The idea is that this is um, supposed to be a commentary on film viewership, right? You are Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. You're watching people live their lives 
on screen without them knowing you're there. And the same thing is true here. I think that it's possible that the medium of film was so new at this time that the experience of sitting in a theater watching a movie was not as immersive as it is today. And that you were constantly thinking about the, the fact you were watching a movie while you're watching a movie. And so this sort of uh, commentary about the very nature of film was something that, that Hitchcock was trying to get to. You know, this is not his first movie. This is like his, I don't know, 30th movie or something. He made so many movies. But this, like, this is far down his career, far after he was world-renowned as one of the greatest directors of all time. Um, and uh, he makes this one. Nobody likes it. <laughs> it doesn't make any money. <laughs> but it's about him, I think. I think it actually is about him. Saying that I'm the horny guy here, like he's, he's just putting it on display saying, I am him. I think so. I really do. And I think that's like this vulnerability that I think David Fincher hints at that is almost um, impossible to ignore, right? Because he recognized that what he was doing to his actresses, transforming them into the woman of his dreams, was this destructive force, right? And what if somebody was doing that, but it wasn't a movie? I think is kind of what this movie is supposed to be like, right? It's like, isn't this terrible or isn't this crazy? And I, I really, I, I honestly feel like it's something like uh, meant to be reacted to, meant to be like, maybe we should change this, but nobody does that. Instead, they're like, this is great. We can we should keep doing this. <laughs> we should, if you want to make something, you have to do it like this. Yes. <laughs> so you want to break, you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. You got to break some uh, blonde women's heads. Yeah. You got to tell them exactly how they should look. And it should be like this, how I'm telling you they should look. Exactly. Wow. That's compelling. Well, okay. I have a quote to, to support my, my thesis here. Um, and this ties into the very first. Uh, the title sequence where you're watching a woman's eye, specifically her pupil. And that's what did he do? Did he train you? Did he rehearse you? Did he tell you exactly what to do, what to say? You were a very apt pupil too, weren't you? You were a very apt pupil. This is uh, ah. uh, Scotty uh, interrogating um, Judy at the top of the bell tower, finally getting her to confess that she had been tricking him the whole time. And uh, he... Um, he talks about how Gavin trained her and rehearsed her, which are, of course, film terms. This movie has so much like to, to, to analyze, so many things to snap your fingers at and point at the screen uh, to say <laughs> that I, I picked up on that this time. Um, it's incredible. It is something. <laughs> uh, one thing i do want to i wanted to mention earlier way earlier you mentioned that this movie is seems almost like overly rehearsed it almost seems like you're watching a stage play and one of the aspects of that that i think is un like impossible to ignore is how much johnny changes his place in whatever room he's in while he's having a conversation. <laughs> this dude is constantly sitting down and standing back up and leaning on this and then moving around to another spot in the room. And I just thought it was so funny that nobody ever addressed it. They are all Yeah, fine well, Gavin does the same thing. Because Hitchcock's like, I, oh, it would be cool if, if he's, if Gavin's standing over him, but in the in the background here. Oh, it would be cool if he's over here by this portrait. You know, he's got this whole set to play with, right? Let's send, let's send Gavin into the other room uh, where, with the pool table and then we'll have a, a john over here you know uh, yeah it's just uh 
I don't know. It's, it's well, like you have to have him eat the scenery or something. Well, yeah, that's the thing is um, I, I was recently in uh, a lawyer's office getting my will signed. I'm, I'm oh, know, really ready to die. Uh, and as they say, <laughs> and I was <laughs> sitting in this conference room with all this old uh, furniture surrounding me. Like there was literally one, it would appear to be like a church pew that was kind of like in the corner as like a bench to sit on. And then there was like chairs to sit around the conference table. But then there are also these like nice chairs that were kind of lined up in the corners. And I was just, as I was waiting for the lawyer to show up, I was thinking about what kind of different things happened in a room like this uh, that would necessitate this odd assortment of furniture and and that office that elster has is even more robust with its seating options and i just felt that it was hilarious that johnny would be like i'll just try them all then you know i'll just have a seat over here and i'll get up and i'll have a seat over there and honestly what's the point of having all these chairs if you don't want to sit in them exactly and if i'm not going to take anything else away from this movie is that i'm going to start uh seeing if i can get away with that uh this kind of like a change like a rapid uh, rotation of seating uh, while I'm having a conversation <laughs> with someone. Never breaking concentration, but always finding a new place in the room to be uh, while, while we're talking. So I thought that was just hilarious. I mean, this movie's full of little like idiosyncrasies like that. You, you even hinted at it in our synopsis. But the way that he tailed her, Yes. I thought was so funny because it's like when he's in his car, it's like he's invisible. Like He, go, he follows her into an alley. <laughs> <laughs> which is yes. like gotta be the only car there sticks his head out the window as if he can't see her through the windshield <laughs> like like are you trying to be spotted you asshole <laughs> yeah and then she he's is like just one car notice. behind her. he's like the, the, uh, the nearest car behind her when he's following her in the street stops everywhere she stops and she never turns around and notices is standing like 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 not even behind the pillar in the um in the art gallery yes. is talking to other people in the art gallery asking about her like you're not being sneaky at all <laughs> the uh the way that when she was walking through the graveyard and she walks past him and he just kind of stands still next to her clearly the inspiration for the t-rex scene in jurassic yes. park with the She's, way that he's yeah, like her she can't movement exactly oh Except, my gosh like, the only time he's not doing like being super obvious is when she's about to kill herself then he's right. like way too far behind <laughs> uh yeah that was i don't know it, um it's what it's one of those things that i almost i overlook for two reasons uh actually i'll give you three one because it's a 50s movie and i'm like uh okay that's like old old timing um and then also because I like there's a potential that she was under a trance or something. So mm -hmm. it's like yeah. she's just she doesn't even know what her surroundings are. And then the third one is that she re later revealed wanted him to tail her. Right. So right. she could be thinking in her head, this moron thinks I don't know he's there. <laughs> you know, like, I know you're there, idiot. But, you know, follow me anyways. Is that's the whole plot of this thing. So right, I which do is think like, you get a get out of jail card there. I do think like the suspension of disbelief is is really strange in this movie because at no point do you get a hint that um madeline is playing a part right beyond her saying it's too late right i need to do something and you can't come with me right there's uh, she's playing the part perfectly she never slips up she never gives any indication that something's wrong when judy sees uh when judy opens the door to see scotty for the, for the first time after she's faked her death, right? No hint of recognition. She's immediately like, who are you? What are you doing here? Plays it off as if he's just some weird stalker, right? Incredible. I mean, and 
you, I think we're supposed to believe that she's just that good of an actress, right? But I feel like it's there's no hint at all, and it really throws you off balance because you're like, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what's going on. I only can I can only go with what, what's being told to me here. And our actor, our actors are so good at playing the part of being of lying to each other that it's impossible for me to tell what I should be picking up on or what I should not be. You know, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's uh, bizarre. I did feel like it was interesting um, looking back at uh, some quotes from Kim Novak after playing this role where she said, quote, I'm a girl playing a girl disguised as another girl, <laughs> yes. uh, which is obviously not a real quote, but a uh, reference to a great film from the aughts. And, uh, but yeah, it, it, it was, I agree. There, there was no real hint that I picked up on that she had any sort of, uh, she ever tipped her hand that she was yeah. not who she was, um, which I guess kind of reminds me of Glass Onion, uh, where you, you, you right. have no chance of catching the mystery. The movie really, I mean, the, in retrospect, there's a lot of stuff there, but there's plenty of things that are basically bold-faced lies that you have no choice but to accept as truth that are later revealed like, uh, actually, it was this. And that's supposed to be a clever twist when it's just completely impossible for you to have ever seen it any other way. Yeah, and I want to be clear that I don't like that that Hitchcock has done this in this movie either. I think it's, it's I think it also think it's, it's unfair, but it, it at least is thematically consistent, right? At least he's, the whole movie's point is to make you feel like you don't know what's going on and that you're in some sort of trance or dream state and that nothing is real or everything is real or something, right? Whereas um, Glass Onion is trying to tell a more traditional story. Uh, you know, this Vertigo is literally playing with your expectations of what a film is um, at every level. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would almost uh, welcome, I, I'm hesitant to say this, but I almost would welcome a spiritual like remake of this movie that takes with it some of these thematic um, like th- threads where this kind of uh, spiral motif can go with it, but it tells a story that makes more sense. You know, <laughs> it can still repeat itself. It can still echo throughout itself. It can still be structured in this fractal manner, but tell us a story that doesn't make us scratch our heads the entire time and say, is any of this real? Is any of this possible? Why should I even care? Yeah. Uh, because I like, again, and, and you've kind of harped on it here, but I felt like the love story was completely boring and, and nonsense. It's like, we're both attractive people, right? That's why we love each other. And uh, it's like, really? That's why? Uh, like, it didn't even, they don't even go as far as to state that. They just kind of, I know. it just happens. And, and uh, I just can't get on board with that, no matter what, how great the director is. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah. I mean, this is... Uh, this and Citizen Kane are, are kind of up there. They kind of trade spots for best movie of all time on Sight and Sound's list and many other people's lists. What do you think? How would you rank the Citizen Kane versus Vertigo? Which one do you like more? I still, I mean, I was a big Kane head when we did that podcast. So uh, I, I don't think this dethrones Citizen Kane uh, in my mind. I do think they both 
have a very similar vibe in that there's like kind of more to the movie than meets the eye, which is what makes it so revered. But to me, Citizen Kane was more fun to watch versus this one, which was, again, like I talked about, a a real slog. So easy choice for me. Citizen Kane, uh, better. It's the better, best movie of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we settled that. (laughs) What about you? I mean, uh, which one? I I know you were a little bit less cavalier on Citizen Kane when we talked about it together. Uh, How does this, which one takes the crown for you? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I don't want to give this movie anything, honestly. That's how I feel about it. I, I don't like it, but I have to respect it still, you know? And for, I, have to, I think I would say that this one is a little bit more interesting. Um, there's a little bit more on the page for Vertigo than there is on Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a reflection of its time. Vertigo is too. But Citizen Kane was made for a specific person. Um, it's just like the greatest diss track ever made basically. Um, but it's, uh, it, but it, you're right. It's so much more fun to watch. It is interesting for a lot of reasons, technically and like plot wise. Um, and of course, Orson Welles being like such an auteur, um, like really stands above. Whereas, um, this movie has a lot of interesting technical stuff. Um, but I just, don't know how much I want to give Hitchcock, how much credit I want to give Hitchcock. I honestly, at this point, and maybe I have to do more reading, feel like Hitchcock was just one of the luckiest motherfuckers that's ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, what about, uh, here's a question for you. Uh, Do you want to revisit Hitchcock on this podcast? Um, I I really liked Rear Window. I thought it was great. Um, And I wouldn't mind watching psycho or any of the others um you know i think this one really hits me because it is such an indictment on film itself and um it's so clear to me the threads uh, that that vertigo has created that have led to all the things i hate about the movie industry today and um maybe that's better obscured (laughs) in the other hitchcock movies um uh but i don't know uh i'm i'm more hesitant than i was when i first than when I watched this movie before. before right, because, right, right. And of course, because when we build out the Apple chat calendar, you know, we, we both contribute to this. And this was a selection you made. So, uh, like, what made you pick this movie? And, and how do you feel about that now? It's on my, uh, my I have a scratch uh, poster, a scratch off poster that has movies on it. And this was one of the movies that was on it that I hadn't seen. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> once I, when I pre- like did my preliminary research before watching it, I was like, oh, great. The greatest movie of all time. Awesome. <laughs> I, I'm surprised I hadn't heard of this. <laughs> of course, I'd heard of the director, but I, I this is my first uh, journey into Hitchcock, and I'm I'm intrigued. I'll I'll be honest, but yeah, I'm hoping that something else that he makes resonates more with me from like a, a story perspective. That's funny because I was sure that you're the one who picked this uh, movie. So it's so it's we. I totally just I totally don't remember that. But it makes sense that I picked it. I, it but, may have been that I was possessed by. I was some I when Jenny was like, "Who picked this movie?" Because I was complaining about it to her. She, I was I was like, "Benjamin picked it." <laughs> yeah, nice that, try. That was wrong. It was me. It was me the whole time. <laughs> uh, okay well i think it's time for us to move on to our cool easter eggs and um what do you got for us joy um hitchcock is famous for uh making a cameo in all of his movies um this one is his cameo in this one uh appears just before 
Scotty is let into Gavin's um, uh, office. They're like on the shipyard and a bunch of people are walking by. He, Hitchcock, is, has his head down and just walks across the camera at one point. But you're focused on the background, not on him. So, and, you know, unless you know what he looks like, you, can't really, you don't see his face, really. You just see his profile, which is also famous. Um, so if you go back and look at that part, around 11 minutes in the movie, um, you'll see him. I want Classic. to uh, shout out the Blue Rose podcast. Um, really, really great podcast. I listened to two podcasts. Uh, this I, I listened to a different uh, one. I think it was called Hitchcock Presents or something like that. Uh, the Blue Rose podcast was far, far better. <laughs> and it was really, really good. And um, the, the guy who made it uh, really spent a lot of time putting t- things together. Uh, had a lot of quotes. Some of the ones, some of the same ones I played earlier. Um, really put some stuff together for me that really made me consider this film in a, in a deep way. And uh, he said a very similar thing where he watched this for the first time when he was 15 and then ended up watching it over and over again uh, later and uh, falling deeper and deeper in love with the movie. Um, and I highly recommend you listen to that podcast. It was, uh, it was very good. All right. Um, I've got one for you. Uh, this movie was unavailable for three decades because its rights, together with four other movies of the same period, were bought back by Sir Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter, Patricia Hitchcock. They've been long known as the five lost Hitchcocks among movie buffs and were re-released in theaters around 1984 after an approximately 30-year absence. The others are The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, Rope, and The Trouble with Harry. Uh, It's been said that in that year when people were watching it, people said, this is literally 1984. (laughs) (laughs) I love this, these quotes. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is really interesting, and I can't speak for the other ones. I've seen Rear Window, and I think that's a much more traditional story, but the fact that Hitchcock pulled this from production or from release, right, circulation, I guess is the right word, um, is really interesting to me because it sort of hints that maybe this was too personal or something. Like, maybe he didn't like the reaction that people had to it and therefore wouldn't uh, release it. And I think you actually have something down here, too, about one of the reasons why he uh, he thought the movie didn't succeed, right? Yes. And um, yeah, so Sir Alfred Hitchcock was embittered at the critical and commercial failure of this movie in 1958. He blamed this on James Stewart for, quote, looking too old uh, to attract audiences anymore. Hitchcock never worked with Stewart, previously one of his favorite collaborators, again. And I just want to point out that there was a 25-year age difference between James Stewart and Kim Novak in this film. Uh, He was 49 and she was 24 uh, when the movie was shot in 1957. Yeah, so there's also a... Uh, sort of uh, nitpick or inconsistency with the ages because he, because uh, James Stewart and uh, Barbara Bell uh, Geds, who plays Midge, and Gavin uh, Elster are all supposed to be college mates. They're all supposed to know each other from college. But um, the, the actress who plays Midge is 14 years younger than Jim Stewart. So she looks much, she looks like she, uh, age much more gracefully than he did in the story. Um, I think, okay, I think this is hilarious uh, that um, Hitchcock called uh, Jimmy Stewart too old, and that's why the movie failed. He's such a bitter 
angry old man hitchcock <laughs> he's he's such an asshole right he he has he tortures jimmy stewart on this set of this movie make turns turns him into this you know uh ref, dark reflection of his of his own soul and then it's like he's too old that's why people didn't like it you know it's like he's su- like i i i think he's just such a, a nasty old man um <laughs> hitchcock so i uh uh, I think it's it's funny that he can't accept blame for uh, the critical failure of this movie. Yeah, um, also, it's laughable to be like, you look too old. Also, you're 49, and I'm yeah. putting you on this. I'm choosing you for this role. Exactly, like, like, exactly. What are you going for? Right, like he didn't know he was too old beforehand. Yeah, <laughs> stupid. Um, I think I actually think that his age and the age gap between him and Kim Novak works for this movie the the theme that they're going for of forbidden love or you know um the love that's not meant to be i think works because he looks so much older um so i don't know um what's interesting about the lost hitchcocks and specifically vertigo is that the original copy that was owned by Patricia hitchcock was in terrible shape when they wanted to re-release it and actually they had a controversial restoration in 1996, um, where they recolored and added Foley work to the movie, um, which is really, really interesting. Um, so the, the, the version that you see on like now actually is like the 1996 version. And one of the key successes from the restoration was that Ford Motor Company had a swatch of color um, from one of the cars in the movie, and they were able to use that to match the color in the movie and then successfully recolor the rest of it um it used a lot of like uh, apparently co- like computer aided color colorization and there are even scenes that needed eight generations of color restoration i'm not sure exactly what that means but that's what they said in wikipedia um uh for them to get the right color back into the screen um it is amazing how much color is used in this movie how much it relies on color to tell its story and for that to be something that was faded so much in the release and then restored to what people consider to be a faithful restoration in 1996. Um, really interesting stuff. I think uh, fascinating, like recovery of a historical monument. Yeah. It always blows my mind how nice some movies can look despite how old they are. And it's film. I'm sure- it's what film is, you know, that's not digital film. It's actually filming on film. It's what Christopher Nolan insists on. It, it film has infinite depth because it, it's a, uh, it's it's capturing things on uh, the molecular level. So um, these like megapixel stuff is is always going to be have artifacts when you zoom in, but film never has artifacts. Um, so it's uh, it just gives this richness and this texture to it that I think is um, unmatched. Um, so the hotel that uh, Judy stays in, the Empire Hotel, has been renamed the Vertigo Hotel and is part of what you might call the uh, Vertigo um vacation or the vertigo tour of san francisco where movie lovers will visit all the key locations in san francisco uh, that are displayed in this movie um and the her room was uh like kept the way it was as like something that you could visit and, and all this stuff i think the hotel is actually now permanently closed i think it didn't survive the pandemic or something but um Anyway, that was something that uh, a way for that hotel to stay in business was to market itself as we were in Vertigo. Remember that? (laughs) Um, At the beginning of the movie, uh, where we see the woman's pupil and the title sequence come out of it, 
Um, this was not Kim Novak. It was supposed to be Kim Novak. She said that she wanted to do it, but uh, her agent insisted she be paid her full wage uh, and Hitchcock didn't want to pay her for a one day of shooting. So he got someone <laughs> else uh, to, to stand in for her uh, wow. in her face. Um, so there's this book. It's called De Entre le Mort, Mort De Entre le Mort, uh, which was written by these French guys. Um, the, so it's sort of controversial, it, it, and Hitchcock denies that this is true, but it's widely believed that this book that the movie is based on was written so that Hitchcock would adapt it into a movie. Um, and uh, uh, Francois Truffaut who is a French director who was a huge fan of Hitchcock and actually did these extensive interviews with Hitchcock while he was still alive. And then that was um, uh, put into a film called Hitchcock uh, Truffaut uh, that uh, is no longer available on traditional streaming sites. It's available somewhere. But um, it's a documentary that features directors talking about Hitchcock and a lot of quotes from Hitchcock. Basically, Truffaut followed him around for years, asking him about why he was doing what he was doing and all that stuff. And he asked him about this book. He said that, um, like, wasn't it true that um, they made this book, they wrote this book for, so you would adapt it? And Hitchcock said, there's no evidence to that. They, I didn't buy the rights to the book until after they published it. But uh, they didn't wait, <laughs> like Paramount didn't wait for the book to be, pu- to be published in English before they adapted, before they bought the rights to it. And mm. um, these guys had previously written books um, that had been adapted by other people in Hollywood. And it was rumored that uh, one of their previous works, uh, Hitchcock had his eye on, but then it got scooped up by someone else. And so they're like, oh, there's a market for this. Let's, uh, <laughs> you know, if we make a movie that Hitchcock's going to make into a, if we make a, mov- a book that Hitchcock's going to make into a movie, we can sell a lot of copies. It's sort of like the, um, I think of it as like the um, Russia interference in the 2016 election. Uh, Trump says on the stand, like, uh, like on the podium, it would be great. It would be great you know, <laughs> if, uh, if Russia would investigate Hillary Clinton and Russia's like, hey, maybe we will do that. And there was no actual collusion, right? They didn't actually say, let's do this together. Trump just said, this is a good idea. And Russia said, we agree. <laughs> and <laughs> similar thing is happening here. So parallel thinking in a way. It would be uh, great which, if someone would make, write a book that uh, <laughs> is one of my movies. You know, that's... <laughs> I do I was thinking that Hitchcock uh, was very Trumpian, so. <laughs> um, so uh, one, there's uh, the sort of controversy. I don't know how you felt about this, but um, Hitchcock, uh, in the book, right, um, the reveal that Madeline and Judy are the same person happens at the end, right? Which, if you're thinking about this story, sort of feels like the natural twist to have at the end of the movie but um in this movie hitchcock insisted that it happened in the middle right near that right after judy is introduced and he had this to say about it everyone around me was against this change they all felt that the revelation would be saved for the end of the picture i put myself in the place of a child whose mother is telling him a story when there's a pause in her narration the child always says what comes next mommy well, I felt that the second part of the novel was written as if nothing came next. Whereas in my formula, the little boy, knowing that Madeline and Judy are the same person, would then ask, and Stuart doesn't know, does he? What will he do when he finds out? In other words, we're back to our usual alternatives. Do we want suspense or surprise? Now, this difference between suspense and surprise is something that Hitchcock is famous for. He's famous for inventing 
suspense or suspenseful thrillers. And he says uh, this, this is a quote from a different source, but also Hitchcock. Hitchcock described the difference between the two. Surprise, surprise is when two people are sitting in a coffee shop and a bomb goes off under the table. Suspense is when we see a man place a bomb under the table and we watch two people meet to have coffee. So uh, this is something that uh, I truly appreciate about film when there's something telegraphed about what's going to happen, right? When you can tell what's going to happen and you, you're waiting for the thing to happen. Um, I think that's awesome. And this is, I think you could equate this to a competent um, horror film versus a film that relies on jump scares, right? You're, are you surprised, right? Oh, I didn't see that coming. Or are you uh, filled with suspense where you, your tension is building in your body? You're waiting for something to happen. You know it's about to happen. It's, it's going to happen for sure, but you don't know when or what the consequence is going to be. Um, I, I agree with Hitchcock. That does make it for a, make for a better movie. I agree, and I think that's a really good way to put that because that's a criticism I always have when a, a horror movie is over reliant on jump scares because they can't create that suspense, uh, you know, organically. But yep. I don't, I don't understand this reliance on the child to be the, you know, the one who's supposed to be imparting some sort of knowledge on us with his <laughs> asking his mom what comes next. What? what? I, I, I'm missing that. Like, uh, I feel like you could just say the viewer would ask that. I, I don't really think that it comes across stronger at being a child. I mean, maybe I guess he maybe considers his to audience to be children. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's some sort of Freudian thing going on here, especially <laughs> since uh, uh, Hitchcock is famous for um, his problems with moms and mothers. Actually, mm. uh, most of his characters have some sort of mommy issue. Um, he's actually there's this famous story when he was five years old, uh, when he was in trouble, he was sent to the police department um, with a note and the police chief took the note and then put Hitchcock in a in a cell for five minutes and then told him that's what we do to naughty little boys uh so his his uh idea of morality is a what you might call skewed (laughs) (laughs) um this movie vertigo actually has an alternate ending and this was uh some people believe that this is because of a foreign uh censorship uh requirement but that's actually not true this was a dictation by the studio heads. Um, the alternate ending features Midge listening to the radio as Gavin is chased across Europe, and then um, John shows up at her apartment and they share a drink together. Uh, almost no di- There's no dialogue between our, our two characters in the scene, only from the radio. Um, this doesn't add hardly anything to the movie besides maybe a reconciliation between Midge and John. Um, but uh, uh, and and it also makes it seem like as if uh, Gavin might be caught, but this was omitted from the um, actual like release of the movie. Hitchcock insisted on this ch- on keeping this change, uh, or or not keeping this change, and uh, it, that leads us with this kind of uh, depressing uh, ending where nobody uh, gets justice and nobody's happy. Um, so uh, take it what you will. It's it's an interesting way to book end your movie or to have an alternate ending where you don't actually change the events of the movie you just add this extra little scene to it it's like a minute long you can find it on youtube really easily yeah i can take it or leave it i guess it's it's yeah. does, i feel like it's not super meaningful i'm just glad that it didn't like 
uh, you know, do something where Midge is like, I can't stop thinking about this Elster guy in in, in Europe. <laughs> Why is he doing this? And, uh, you know, I have to go be like, be obsessed with him now. And then we get <laughs> sequel bait. Vertigo 2. Vertigo 2. Um, uh, what's another? Vertigo thing? 2. Vertigo. Tinnitus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, everything has to do with ringing. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Um, one more thing I want to mention, uh, there's this, uh, some people out there who are really obsessed with this movie. I found this, um, uh, video from a, a channel called, uh, Collative Learning. Um, and I thought it was really good. I recommend you watch it. It's about Scotty driving his car. So th- I didn't pick up on this until I listened to the Blue Rose podcast, but when Scotty's driving his car in San Francisco, uh, following Madeline around, I think it's probably the second or third time you see this happen. Uh, it's this really long, like two or three minute sequence where he's driving and driving and driving. And he, and even Scotty is getting um, flabbergasted and upset with the fact that he keeps driving. Um, this entire scene, he's driving downhill, which is supposed, and he's making left turns and then right turns. I think it's like left, left, right, right, left, right, left, right. I don't remember exactly. But this guy in this video traces the actual streets that he drives on in san francisco there's only one moment where it doesn't actually make sense uh like this the street that he's on doesn't actually exist but um uh it, it uh it all kind of works its way out and uh although he doesn't drive in an exact spiral the the feeling of him driving descending um is pretty uh purposeful and interesting and uh one of my favorite parts of the movie um which started off as one of the most boring parts of the movie um I should have known. Uh, I should have known yes. there was more to it because uh, you know, every, there's so much intention in this film. It's, but I'm the, I'm learning that you know slowly. It's being hammered into me, movie after movie. That the parts that are, if you're like, this is boring. Maybe something else is going on. Yes, um, because the first time I watched yeah. this, it felt like a Tim and Eric sketch that was going on too yes. long. Like yes. it's like can more driving, more driving. Like cut to the green screen shot of him inside the car, and then back to the street. This is an example of me when I was watching the first time. Like I'm like upset, you know. I'm like, what's going on? Like what is happening? Why is this going on? You know, which is exactly the way I'm supposed to feel. But I didn't realize that I was supposed to feel that way until I had truly like <laughs> done all my research. Um, and yeah, even the background, like even like the uh, the projection, the rear projection of like in the background behind Scotty, that is also like uh, San Francisco accurate in in some scenes. Um, so it's it is like uh, pretty masterful in its way. And I recommend you watch this, this video. It's only like six minutes long. Um, so interesting. I will watch it and then I'll add it to the description so that the listener can watch it too. So I've got uh, a couple more Easter eggs for us um the opening title sequence was designed by saul bass and makes this the first movie to use computer graphics so it's kind of the original uh pixar's toy story if you will yeah yeah uh, exactly. this movie that's, that's exactly what i was thinking um i think it was some sort of like aircraft aircraft equipment that they used to make these images it was like a, like an oscilloscope or something it was not like they were they had something like adobe premiere or like even like anything that like a computer program to do this it was like some other piece of equipment that displayed stuff on screen that they were able to record and then put and then superimpose onto the movie uh truly bizarre stuff honestly 
Yes, I imagine this was really stopping hearts and, and like popping suspenders for people in the 50s uh, to see something like this on screen, like, uh, like he'd never seen it before. Um, and then uh, also in the special uh, effects department here, uncredited second unit cameraman Ermin Roberts invented the famous zoom out and track in shot, now sometimes called contra zoom or trombone shot, to convey the sense of vertigo to the audience. The view down the mission stairwell cost $19,000 for just a couple of seconds of screen time. So really got know- the shot there. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you know how they filmed this? It's actually a miniature on its side. Um, because apparently when it like bringing up everything to do this in an actual stairwell was going to cost like three times or four times as much as it ended up costing them. Um, so they, they had to fake it with a miniature. Um, it looks pretty good. This is truly iconic stuff. This falls into my category of like, uh, Hitchcock, um, innovations, right? This is, he has this idea called pure cinema, which is basically, the language of cinema that we are all familiar with today where you can show like an example of this in most simple terms is you show a guy's face and then you show a bookshelf and what's communicated to the audience is that guy is looking at the bookshelf right and what hitchcock loved about this is that neither the guy nor the bookshelf had to be in the same room at the same time or and that guy didn't have to be looking at a bookshelf when he filmed it, right? Um, which is not true for almost any other medium, right? It's not film, right. true for music or 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 theater or anything else, right? And only film allows you to do stuff like that. And so him uh, using the abilities of a camera to pull off something that looks interesting, I think, is a natural progression of that philosophy. Um. The only other, th- only other thing I want to mention is I read this really great article from Cinephilia Beyond uh, this morning about this movie. I And uh, Benjamin, if you won't mind putting that into the description as well uh, for people to enjoy if you want to get whet your appetite with even more Vertigo content. Yeah, I mean, if you're not obsessed uh, with this movie by now, I, I don't know if you'll ever be, right? But for those who are you know spinning and reeling with their uh, <laughs> engrossment of this film surely more content is what you're after um so that is going to be the end of our cool easter eggs and the end of our discussion on vertigo as we do at the end of every episode of apple chat we'll now deliver our ratings joey what rating do you want to give to vertigo i give this movie falling into a wormhole as time stretches in both directions pulling me toward the past and future until I am spaghettified. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There's a lot of meaning in that rating. I like that. Uh, my rating for this film, I give it a safety rope to put around the bell tower so folks stop falling off of it. <laughs> I it was so anticlimactic to just be like, Or maybe a fucking whoops. railing? <laughs> that, nu- that nun crossing herself after scaring a woman off the ledge like a She's year like, after Whoa. another woman fell off that ledge yeah like, whoops. truly not again <laughs> that truly an oops moment uh okay well there you have it vertigo it's uh it's hitchcock and it's it's here on affable chat so we discussed it and uh there you have it joey what's next <laughs> on affable chat uh, next, we are doing the movie Three Idiots, a Bollywood film that was recommended to us by Kenny from our sister podcast, The C Team. Yep, we love getting the family together. Kenny's going to be here talking about Three Idiots with Joey, so uh, look forward to that. 
You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Afflechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. That's where you can find the latest from us in all of our social accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at Afflechat or even our email address, Afflechat at gmail.com. I'm just going to do a special little plug for our YouTube because we haven't uploaded there super frequently, but our steamed hams video is uh you know slowly gaining ground in the steamed hams uh you know uh universe so go check out our our steamed steamed hams video i love that video i think about it every day (laughs) and that's just because i get notifications about it on my phone If you like this episode, then become obsessed with with it. Um, all you have to do <laughs> is follow it to the gravesite, to the flower shop, to the art museum, um, and eventually into the San Francisco Bay where you'll have to fish it out um, and then say to your friends, have you considered listening to Apple Chat? <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for this episode. For Apple Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>